This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Violis is a CBS News security consultant, an accomplished author, and a renowned global security and law enforcement expert. With over 35 years of experience, he's dedicated his life to finding solutions for the problems that keep you up at night. This is Security Matters with Paul Violis. Welcome to Security Matters, where your security matters most. I'm Paul Violis, and this is a CBS News Radio production. A quick thank you to everybody hitting us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and, and certainly now on LinkedIn. Really appreciate all your comments. Uh, bearing in mind, too, a lot of the things that, that you guys are writing in on, we are cataloging as far as content, and, and we are going to make sure that we get each one of those subjects addressed in a different episode. Right now, believe it or not, I think we're like 30-something deep on requests, which is phenomenal, but uh, we are going to get to them, so a big thank you on that. Today, uh, one of the most important days in the history of our country uh, clearly one of the most important days because we're honoring the very people that allow us the very fabric of freedom we are clothed with every day. I'm talking about Veterans Day and a very happy, a very thankful, and a very blessed Veterans Day to all of our veterans. Uh, as we honor everyone today that has served in each branch of service, we take some time to do what we really should do every day. Um, but today is just to make sure that all of our spectacular veterans, all of the people that leave their families, that go to protect our way of life, uh, we take today, also known as Armistice Day, we take today to, to honor and to reflect on all the gifts that we have as Americans, why we're such a great country, and all the people that, has, that have made that possible. We started, believe it or not, we started celebrating this on November 11th, 1918, 
uh, when the armistice with Germany went into effect, uh, at the urging of major <clears throat> U.S. veteran organizations back in 1954, it was renamed Veterans Day. Uh, and we've been celebrating it ever since, and God willing, we're going to celebrate it every day for many, many, many years to come. Today, I am going to introduce five spectacular veterans, each one that personally responsible for so much of the freedom that we enjoy. You're going to recognize a couple of the names, and all of which will be joining us right now. So just stay on this because you're going to get a chance to meet some really special people, hear their stories, and have an inside look at each branch of service from people that have spent their careers, not just in that branch of service, but serving us. Before I do anything, though, I want to make sure that I dedicate this show today to the two greatest men I will ever know, uh, without question. My dad, Michael Violas, who in World War II was on the original UDT, Underwater Demolition Team in the Navy, was a chief petty officer. And my father-in-law, Arthur Nitty, who was in the Army, private first class, who saw uh, combat his entire time in World War II. Um, without question, just two, the two most important men in my life. Um, an interesting part about them is that they both received numerous medals during World War II, and neither one of them stuck around long enough to pick them up. Um, we were able to pull some of them together before my father-in-law died, but unfortunately not before my dad died. So today, to both of them, Pop, Dad, I love you both, and we miss you both. So without further ado, our first guest today is someone that you know. Uh, we are blessed here at CBS News Radio to have this gentleman as a CBS News Radio military analyst. He is a great friend to this to the show. He is a great friend to me. I'm talking about General Dan Goodrich. And for those of you that may not be aware of this wonderful man's resume, he spent 30 years in the United States Air Force, retiring as a brigadier general. He completed his Air Force career at the Pentagon, serving as the deputy for Air Force intelligence during the 9-11 attacks. He is uh, a pilot, he is a leader, and he is someone that when you think about the word selfless, and you think about somebody who spends all of his days to this day just doing whatever he can to help other people out, that's, that's who General Goodrich is. General, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Paul, and thank you so much for those kind words. Well, all true, all true. And you know, General, I want to just start off, I'm going to be asking everyone uh, the, the same questions, but I want to start off with... Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Air Force through your eyes? Well, it's a, the Air Force is a great way of life. I, you know, there's a lot of rivalry between all the services, and it's all, it's all good-natured uh, rivalry because, you know, we're all in, this, all in the same boat trying to, get to, trying to uh, protect our way of life. So, uh, but there's, there's, good, there's a good sense of rivalry between the services. But, uh, you know, having said that, uh, the best one is obviously the Air Force. Um, it, it's a it's a it's a great way of life. Um, I I couldn't uh, have uh, chosen a better uh, way to spend my days up until this point. And and uh, it's it's well rounded. It's very high tech. Uh, if uh, you know, I could I could go on and on about how to, how to recruit for the Air Force because there's so many opportunity for such a diverse group of people. That uh, anything you want to do in life, 
you could do it, learn it in the Air Force, and if that's not the career that you're going to stick with, you'll at least have a career that you can fall fall back on uh, when the day comes that you re- that you leave the Air Force. So I, I can't say enough good things about the, the breadth of experience that people are able to gain, uh, not just in uh, their career fields or their fields that they choose to to improve in, but just as people and just as a, a, to become disciplined and uh, and work as a team as a unit uh, probably the key key um, words in the air force are teamwork you know, there's no doubt about that you can't do it by yourself so it's it's a great way of life as the advertisements say it is a great way of life can you tell us a little bit about your career general i know that you you know originally you hail from st louis missouri the great st louis missouri uh, but can you tell us a little bit about your career? Sure. I, um, I you know, I'm not from a military family. Uh, not, my father was served in World War II. Which, going back to what you said, um, he, we never before he passed away, we never had any conversations about his time in the service. And I'm sorry about a lot of things I didn't converse with, talk to my dad about. But I'm really sorry about that because. Uh, he was very, like many of the veterans from the World War II, didn't come home and talk a great deal about it. So I'm sorry about that. But I, I, uh, I went to um, high school in St. Louis and then went to University of Missouri for a year. But during that time frame, I had applied to the Air Force Academy, and, and through the application process, I was accepted. So I spent uh, four years at the Air, United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, with the full intent of... Uh, you know, being a joining the air, being a part of the Air Force as an officer, and uh, uh, and then I went to pilot school to to become a pilot, and the full intent to still of uh, serving my time, and then and then going on to other things. I thought, but the more I stayed in there, the more I I, I uh, became a part of the Air Force, and the Air Force became a part of me. Um, I really never planned on a long term career, but uh, but I. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed uh, flying for our country in the defense of our country and being a part of a team that uh, at the end of the day had the same mission, and that was to protect our way of life. So I, I, I was I was lucky in a, in a way in that at the academy I was able to play baseball uh, in college and had a, had a very enjoyable career there. Uh, I won't say that the academy was the easiest four years of my life, but as I look back many, many years ago, it just seems like a blip on the radar. It was a, a, a it was something that uh, I I was able to bond with many uh, many people, and that was lifelong friendships that uh, that I treasure to this day. Do you so, still keep in touch, bottom, General, with anybody you went to the academy with? Just out of curiosity. I do. I do. We, uh, we. I have a, a small group. I mean, I. If you. If uh, I. I have a lot of acquaintances from those days, uh, but a small group, a core group that to, to this day we. You know, we we visit each other and we do things together and and we share stories from those days. We not try not to share too many with our wives nowadays because they're. Uh, you know, there's some things you just don't share, and I'm just kidding about that. But we have a great time. We have a we have a great time. When we get together. Well, General, before before we we close out, I I want, if you would, um, if you could share your message 
um, with all of our listeners, as you personally reflect on Veterans Day, what do you want Americans to know about all veterans and how important this day is? Well, as you said earlier in, your, in the broadcast, there's not another day as special as this one. If you think back on the people that um, served in our uh, military services and the people who gave their lives in defense of our country, uh, you can't have a more special day to remember everyone. Uh, I, I sometimes think about the other days in the year, Memorial Day and, and uh, other uh, special days, but none is, a, is as unique as Veterans Day. Um, as I think back on my career and, and going through the Vietnam era and then later on, things have changed greatly. And I and I appreciate that uh, the the shows like this and and people uh, and their and how they truly are thankful for what our veterans have done. People come up to me at stores or whatever when you show your ID, they invariably say thank you for your service. And all I really can say back to them is, it's been all no thank you. It's my honor and my pleasure to have served. Uh, our country and 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 help protect our way of life. I I'm so thankful I was able to do it, and and I can't imagine my life having done anything else. So uh, it, it's a special way of life, and there are special people that are doing it today. We mustn't forget them, and we we must always remember uh, that uh, there are thousands and thousands of people today on duty protecting our way. Of life and how we um, and how we will proceed in the future. Well it's, a, it's a great way of life. Well said, sir. And and on behalf on behalf of everyone here uh, at CBS News Radio, Dan, uh, a huge thank you to you, not just for everything you've you've done and the way of life you've afforded us, but for all the great work that you continue to do with us here at CBS News Radio as a military analyst for the show and for the network. So, on behalf of everybody, thank you. We hope you have a wonderful Veterans Day. And uh, God willing, we'll be talking very soon. Uh, that, that sounds good. And again, it's been my honor and my pleasure. Thank you, Thanks, Paul. Stay with us. When we come back, we're going to be introducing you to the skipper of a nuke sub from the U.S. Navy. We'll be right back. Remotely piloted aircraft are getting new attention amid reports Iran shot down a U.S. Navy drone last month and the U.S. downed an Iranian drone last week. Many of the drones the U.S. Air Force flies overseas are piloted from a military base right here in the United States. Janet Shamlian got a rare behind-the-scenes look at those operations, and she joins us now from Creech Air Force Base in Nevada. So, Janet, what's it like out there? Vlad, good morning. Well, Creech is deep in the desert. It's about an hour's drive from Las Vegas, and when you get here, this is what you'll find, a hangar filled with the aircraft's fleet of drones. That, by the way, is a term the military does not love. They prefer remotely piloted aircraft, but whatever you call it, the Reaper, this plane specifically, which has been in the headlines lately, has become an all-star in the military's war on terror. Now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. Welcome back to Security Matters. I'm Paul Violas. And as I mentioned before we took our break, we uh, have the privilege of being joined uh, by someone I consider obviously one of my closest friends, but uh, a gentleman who was the skipper 
of a nuclear sub for the greatest Navy in the world. Of course, we're talking about the United States Navy. Captain Jeff Grenan is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He served as a commissioned officer for over 26 years in the United States Navy's submarine force and in various shore assignments, uh, commanding the, the USS Norfolk, which is a nuclear-powered Los Angeles-class fast attack submarine, something you got to say slowly because you got to appreciate what that means. The Norfolk was recognized with a number of awards, including the prestigious Atlantic Fleet Arleigh Burke Fleet Trophy for superior combat readiness. Uh, to say that Captain Grenan is, is a true patriot would be a gross understatement, um, especially when you think about not just the, the wonderful job that the Navy does, but um, as a skipper of a nuke sub, you're gone a lot. You have an extremely dangerous job. And yet, uh, to this day, Captain Grenand remains in public service. He has various leadership roles right now in support of NASA programs at the Kennedy Space Center. And believe it or not, he has um, probably one of the best rock bands you will ever hear. It's called Whiskey Tango. And I'm going to ask Jeff to tell us a little bit about that because they're absolutely phenomenal. So not only was he a skipper of a nuke sub, but he's a damn good singer. And he's one of my closest friends. Jeff, thanks for joining Hey, thanks, Paul. What a what a humbling introduction, especially about the singing part. <laughs> yeah, no, listen, man. Listen, credit where credit is due, and and you're a star. So I, I'm just like I just think it's great that we're, you had the time to join us today, um, Jeff. I want us I want us to, if you can, let's start out with um, tell us a little bit about the Navy from your eyes. I think that the beginning of the Navy really tells the most important story of why there is a Navy. And it, and it goes back to, to President George Washington. So American merchant shipping was threatened by the Barbary pirates from four North African Muslim states in the Mediterranean. So that led to the, the Naval Act of 1794, which created our permanent standing Navy. So those Barbary pirates were capturing you know, goods and services that were, that were, that were coming and going from, from America. And um, they were stealing our stuff. So we went out there and uh, formed a Navy, uh, went out and addressed the problem, and uh, opened up the sea lanes. And ever since then, open transit and freedom of navigation of the seas has been a fundamental tacit of how we live today. Because 90% of the stuff coming into the United States arrives by sea. And, you know... I remember my dad, as you know, my dad was was mm -hmm. in the Navy in World War II. And one thing he always used to say was you have to have tremendous respect for the sea because it's the most powerful thing on the planet. Now, oh, yeah, don't turn your back on her because she'll surprise you. <laughs> when you look when you look over your career now, you start your career uh, at the famed United States Naval Academy, which, you know, mm -hmm. just getting in there is pretty damn tough. And getting out is a whole lot tougher. But so you start your career there. Tell us a little bit about, you know, Captain Grenan's career. How did from from point to point to point, and and how it finished up? Okay, so um, I was selected to the nuclear propulsion program uh, as a midshipman, and so uh, after spending uh, a couple of months out in San Diego post graduation doing recruiting duty, went into six months of nuclear power school. So the first six months is classroom, and it's, you know, it's review, and then you learn new stuff, and you learn reactor physics, and you do simple stuff like, you know, you review three semesters of calculus in a week. So it's a pretty 
pretty high-paced, pretty intensive academic environment. And then if you survive that, then you go to six months of a land prototype where you put those things into action. So you're operating on a land prototype reactor plan. So you learn how to operate it, how to start it up safely, how to shut it down, how to do all those things that you need to do. So that's another six months. Uh, then uh, quick submarine school to introduce you to things like, and if you've ever seen the uh, the videos of the of folks in the, uh, we call it the wet trainer, where there's a, a bunch of piping and stuff like that, and then uh, the the you have a crew with you, and you learn how to stop leaks. So pipes will bust open, and and you you put various methods of of stopping the leak on it, and it's event it's good fun. Um, and, and generally, the water comes up to your neck because you just can't keep up. So they can. It's it's a great great training, and is and, and that's where they start to instill that respect for the sea, for she is unforgiving. So uh, then uh, you go to your first submarine, and you spend three three ish years there. Um, spend nominally half of your life underwater, you know, a little bit in port fixing stuff. Um, and you learn, then you really learn in depth how to operate. You practice operating in casualties, and you learn how to drive the ship too, and you learn how to navigate, and all those fundamental things that that you would expect from our seagoing professionals in the Navy. Um, and if, once you get done with that, then a couple of years at shore to in a various roles. For me, it was um, you know I worked uh, for Naval Sea Systems Command in in DC for a little bit. Uh, and then went back to sea, and then that was on USS Sculpin, which was uh, their drawings was were older than I was at the time. It was a very old, uh, mature submarine, but I learned how to drive and how to how to how to fight effectively on that submarine pretty well. Uh, and then I did another tour uh, as a navigator, so that was three more years. Uh, went to uh, work with the Royal Navy in Scotland for two years, which was a fantastic experience, and developed tremendous respect for the relationship we have with the UK and the proficiency of, <laughs> really, our forefathers in in projecting sea power, right, with right. the Royal Navy. Exactly. So that was that was great. And then another two years is XO is the number two on an attack boat. Uh, spent some time in the Naval Comptroller's office for you know in DC. So there's there's two rounds in DC, and then uh, went back to command uh, Norfolk after some schooling. Uh, spent three you know a little bit over two years there. Um, did the combat operations as you were talking about mm-hmm. in the that was during the spring of 1999 when the the Kosovo Serbia thing was was blowing up. That was um, the old ethnic cleansing, wasn't it? It was. Right. It was, and so. Um, it was it was an interesting time and uh, and sure enough there we are in our little spot in the in the Adriatic uh, getting ready to launch tomahawks and sure enough right next door to us in their own piece of water is the is a Royal Navy submarine who launched tomahawks with us on the first night so again that that relationship between our allies is really a critical sure critical is. thing absolutely so uh, yeah so those that's really the the gut of the of the seagoing career well, i gotta throw one thing in though i gotta I mean as as the skipper of the boat there's immense responsibility beyond my comprehension certainly but you know then you also have the fact that i mean you're you're a, a loyal loving family man um and you're out to sea for months and months and months and months at a time you don't have any lines of communication it's not like you're going to pick up a cell phone right and call your wife mm-hmm. um Take a just a quick minute on 
the sacrifice that your family and other families went through, continue to go through when you've got people like yourself that are gone for extended periods of time without any lines of communication? What's it like on the families? Yeah, that's that's a excellent point, Paul, because those are you know, we're busy. Your the sailor is busy if we're if we're not working 20 hours a day, we're you know, we need to hang our heads in shame because right. it is it is an aggressive lifestyle. But inevitably, when we pop off to sea, be it for weeks at a time or months at a time, inevitably the car breaks the washing machine breaks, the refrigerator breaks, or the roof leaks, something happens. So the spouses or significant others that are that are home minding the store have to deal with that on their own. Right. So right. those those Navy spouses are a tough and special breed and they just take care of the business at home. They support each other. They have a support network. There's an ombudsman for every ship who's 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 a, a spouse of of one of the crew who is that focal point to pull together, understand that there's a problem, pull together the resources, leverage resources that that are available through the Navy, uh, be it the chaplain or or other help, medical help, et cetera. And 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 or just bringing company in to to take care of something or babysitting whatever somebody needs. That's great. But we look after ourselves within that group as well. And we have. But to. those right. we we have those to. Those wives and, we, and spouses right. are unbelievably patient, giving people, and, and I'm thankful for bringing that. Yeah, this and really, I mean, well, you you happen to be blessed with just an extraordinary wife, but I know that the the wives and the husbands, the significant others, the children. Uh, of all of our, um, of all of our veterans, um, active duty, retired, they just play such a critical role, and the sacrifice that family members have to um, have to buy into uh, is really extraordinary, and it's something that I don't know that we do a good enough job in this country at recognizing. I think we do a much better job than we did, at, certainly in the Vietnam era, of recognizing the importance and the critical nature of the success and the linkage to freedom of our veterans. I think we should also take every once in a while take a moment and thank all the family members too. So I really appreciate you saying that. So as we close, Jeff, one quick thing: uh, How do people now? So you you now move into your love for music. How can somebody who's listening right now? How can somebody listen to your music? How can they connect with Whiskey Tango? Oh, easy. Go on Facebook, search for Whiskey Tango Space Coast, and there will be. Okay, well, we're going to put that up on the CBS site so everybody can listen and, and take a listen. Because I can tell you, everybody who likes music, then you got to listen to it because Jeff and his band are great. Jeff, in closing, your message to all the American people, what you want them to know about the significance of Veterans Day. Thank you for all that have served before us. You know, our fathers and grandfathers that served in World Wars One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, really paved the path for how to do this right and how to be tough and how to live that kind of a hard life in a soft society. So reach out and, you know, you see those guys with the veteran hats, 
just reach out and thank them, you know, yep. and, and ask them, ask them what they participated in. Ask them, you know, engage them in conversation. Thank you for your service is nice, but engaging them in a conversation about what they've done and really show interest, interest right. and appreciation in what they did, that's, that's a step forward, and, and that would be a beautiful thing. And some folks won't, may not want to talk about it, and that's, that's okay. Roll with that. But it may, it may make some veterans' day that you're interested in what they did. Couldn't agree more. And appreciate it. Couldn't agree more. Well said. Captain Jeff Grenan, United States Navy, thank you, sir. We appreciate you. You know I love you, and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. But thank you for taking the time to join us today. Happy, happy to do so, Paul. And, and again, thanks everybody that served, civil servants, everybody that serves this nation, you know, from, from me and, and everybody that I've served with. Thank you all. Thanks, Jeff. Stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, you're going to hear from a pilot from the U.S. Coast Guard, someone that has spent her entire career keeping us safe. Stay with me. On this Veterans Day, we introduce you to Captain Amy Bauernschmidt, the first woman in Navy history to hold the title of Executive Officer, or XO, of a nuclear warship. Bauernschmidt serves on the USS Abraham Lincoln, one of 11 U.S. aircraft carriers stationed around the world. Jan Crawford went aboard the carrier in Norfolk, Virginia, where she learned how the XO is trying to make even more history. Well, good morning. So as the XO, Captain Amy Bauerschmidt is the second in command of the USS Lincoln. She manages the ship's day-to-day -day operations so the commander can focus on strategy. She is basically running a floating city of 5,000 people, and it's a city with a mission. At 7.30 every morning, Executive Officer Amy Bauernschmidt leads what she calls XO Power Hour. I will see you on the deck plates. XO out. Bauernschmidt keeps an eye on the sailors as they clean their stations aboard the USS Lincoln. Slide your hand down. There you go. Four and a half acres of sovereign U.S. territory, this warship is on the front lines of disaster relief, humanitarian crises, and armed conflict. Now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. Welcome back to Security Matters. I'm Paul Violas. And as I mentioned before we took a break, uh, we have a very, very, very special person that's going to be joining us right now uh, from the United States Coast Guard. She is a retired lieutenant commander, but you need to understand, as I mentioned earlier when I dedicated the show to my dad, um, Coast Guard has always been very, very near and dear to my heart. It's where my dad enlisted before we engaged at Pearl Harbor, and he, we, my, my brother Frank, also a veteran, was in the Coast Guard. Um, so you know what? It's, uh, so many people we, we talk about, as we should, um, and we hail all of our armed forces and all the branches of service, rather. Um, but so many people really don't understand just how much the U.S. Coast Guard does on a daily basis to provide the very fabric of freedom we are clothed with and the safety that we put our head on the pillow with at night. So it's a pleasure to have uh, former Lieutenant Commander Sidney Sampson's joining us, served as an active duty Coast Guard officer for 20 years. Uh, majority of, of her career, she was a pilot, a helicopter pilot, flying a variety of missions, including search and rescue, law enforcement, pollution response, high altitudes, uh, high latitude science missions. And one of the most important parts of her brilliant resume is that in 2003, during the 100th anniversary flight 
of, of flight celebration in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. She was honored as one of the 100 heroes of aviation, which is, is amazing. Currently, she is the chief security officer of the Transbay Joint Powers Authority. So with that, Sydney, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So let's, Sydney, let's start off with, um, if you would, from your eyes, through your experience, certainly um, at the rank of lieutenant commander as a pilot, as a leader inside the U.S. Coast Guard. Tell us about the Coast Guard. What do you want America to know about the Coast Guard? Well, I think that the Coast Guard, for being such a small service, as you alluded to earlier with your father, the Coast Guard is everywhere. When people leave the Coast Guard, um, they just spread out into the, the community and they come out with great skills. But also the Coast Guard, much more than the other military services, is part of communities. So you're going to see the Coast Guard everywhere. They're not always really well advertised, but the racing stripe is a dead giveaway that you're anywhere near the Coast Guard. Absolutely. Uh, the Coast Guard has a lot of missions. Uh, so a little background on the Coast Guard. During the Revolutionary War, uh, smuggling, which was a, a patriotic thing to do to avoid uh, British tariffs, uh, was, it was critical to um, our survival as a country. But after the war, the U.S. needed the revenue, and people had gotten used to smuggling. So the Revenue Cutter Service, which is the precursor of the Coast Guard, was created in 1790. Um, Alexander Hamilton, um, of now Broadway fame, uh, was the first secretary and is considered uh, secretary of treasury and is considered the father of the Coast Guard. Really? Then in 1915, during World War, yeah, uh, oh, it, it's got an amazing history. It, it's actually the longest uh, seagoing service uh, with, with no breaks. The Continental Navy was disbanded during uh, the period 1790 to about 1798. And so the Coast Guard was the, um, the Navy for the, the new United States. But uh, it's, it's grown over the years, and the mission has changed. In 1915, during World War I, the life-saving service was merged into the Revenue Cutter Service, and the modern Coast Guard was born. They also brought in the Lighthouse Service and then a couple of other organizations. And so uh, the, the Coast Guard continues to evolve. You know, after 9-11, then the Coast Guard moved into DHS, DHS in its entirety. So search and rescue, law enforcement, environmental response, those are all missions that moved over, uh, navigation and uh, ship inspections, and then they added Homeland Security to that. So it's, it's a very um, well-rounded kind of 360 force that supports in uh, peacetime and wartime. Now, one thing, too, though, uh, about the Coast Guard is that, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but for, for all of our listeners need to, need to understand is that our Coast Guard travels in international waters. Our Coast Guard doesn't just sit on our borders, and I don't want to say the word just, but doesn't, isn't limited to patrolling our borders, but goes international as well, correct? It does. So it uh, enforces U.S. law um, wherever U.S. interests are, and it works very closely with other countries. So when they're off the high seas, if I can put it that way, where, where they're really able to uh, do the law enforcement, they coordinate very closely with the countries that surround us and other countries throughout the world uh, to advance U.S. interests, to advance the Coast Guard missions, um, and then also to do a lot of training with foreign navies and foreign Coast Guards. So if you would, tell us a little bit about your career. Okay. Uh, I've, I fell into the Coast Guard by accident. I grew up in Nashville, and they have a very active Coast Guard auxiliary there. So that's the volunteer arm of the Coast Guard. 
everybody that I saw with Coast Guard Auxiliary um, had houseboats and did inspections on weekends, so I actually thought you had to own a houseboat to be in the Coast Guard. <laughs> Found that that was not the case at a later date. And uh, I, I was really drawn to the mission, and who doesn't want to save lives for a living? Exactly. So I applied to the Coast Guard, went through officer candidate school, um, hoping that I would get selected for flight training. Uh, was selected, went through Navy flight training in Pensacola, Florida, the Navy trains the Coast Guard along with Marine Corps and foreign navies. And then from there, I was assigned to Brooklyn Air Station, um, your stomping ground, yes. at least now. And what a, what a great place to, to fly in and to work out of. And I spent a lot of time in the Caribbean on deployments, so got to uh, do a lot of anti-drug patrols and search and rescue. Uh, it, was, it was just a really fascinating area to work. Uh, from there, I was transferred to San Francisco, and I worked in uh, the Pacific Area Command Center, which is like a very large operation center that, that oversees uh, the Pacific side of the world. The Coast Guard divides the world into Pacific and Atlantic commands to really oversee U.S. interests and to support U.S. maritime in uh, those two halves of the world. Uh, from there, I was transferred to Polar Operations, which is near and dear to my heart. And I uh, took two south trips to Antarctica. Uh, it was just um, an amazing place, black and white world, um, almost never gets above freezing. And the science that's done down there is great. So you and went the from the Caribbean the to the Coast Antarctic? I did. Ouch. <laughs> and in, in fact, I was on a, a, a deployment off of Mexico when I got the word that I was going. And uh, so that was, that was a quick change in climate. Yeah. But that was, that, was a, that was a fascinating tour for me. I really, really enjoyed that. The, um, the co in the Coast Guard resides the U.S. military's icebreaking capability. And um, being in Antarctica, I really learned, I learned a lot about icebreaking from the people that were doing it. Uh, the science, uh, and it's critical today because as the, the uh, ice cover melts, especially in the Arctic, mm -hmm. uh, the Coast Guard has one heavy icebreaker and one medium icebreaker, not enough. They have another one that will be built and commissioned by 2023. But uh, the Northwest Passage, which is the shortest route between um, Asia and Europe, is going to become open to shipping soon. And so we need a Coast Guard presence there. And it's an interesting mission that the Coast Guard has held for a long time. It's fascinating. But going back to Antarctica, to see the science, to, to walk with penguins, to be standing you know, a few feet away from minke whales and orca in the wild, was, it was absolutely amazing. And, and I was very, very blessed to be able to go down there with the Coast Guard. Well, as and the, then uh, from there... Yes. Um, Please. Oh, oh sorry. Um, so from there, then I went to San Francisco, back to San Francisco, and I retired out of there and then ended up working for the Port of San Francisco, and now I'm with uh, Transbay Joint Powers Authority, the Chief Security Officer for the Salesforce Transit Center. That's an amazing career. In my career and in a nutshell. Especially, especially as a pilot, a helicopter pilot, and, and search and rescue missions. Um, the, you know, the precision that you have to have in those types of situations, in the most adverse types of circumstances, is, is really, you know, it's just amazing. Um, as we close out, Sydney, what's your message to the American people about Veterans Day? Um, I would ask people to remember what Veterans Day is for, and then just on a daily basis, um, supporting your veterans. I love it when people go up to somebody and say, thank you for your service. Um, but also, military life is really different from civilian life. 
the transition can be very challenging. Um, the people that have died in the service of their country paid the ultimate sacrifice, as did their families. And then uh, those that are wounded, our wounded warriors and their families, they're paying for the rest of their lives. Many of them are in their early to mid-20s, and um, they are, they're going to be suffering from the injuries that they incurred um, in military service until they pass away. And so I would just ask that, um, that the American people support the veterans. That's a great message, and, and one everyone really needs to, to heed. Well, Lieutenant Commander Sidney Sanson, U.S. Coast Guard, thank you on behalf of everybody here uh, at CBS News Radio and certainly at Security Matters for taking time out of your day to join us and for, in, for sharing with us just invaluable information. We're truly grateful to you, and we hope that we get a chance to work with you again in the future. Well, thank you very much, Paul. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Entirely ours. Please stay with me. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got a colonel from the Army that's going to be talking about his time with Delta Force. So stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. The airspace above the nation's capital and the area surrounding Washington, D.C. is the most restricted in the United States. The U.S. Coast Guard is responsible for intercepting any potential threats that may appear in the sky. Only on CBS This Morning, we spent an afternoon riding with the unit that responds at a moment's notice to protect the D.C. airspace. Jeff Pagese is at a Coast Guard hangar at Reagan National Airport. Jeff, good morning. Good morning. We are live on the tarmac here at Reagan National Airport. This is home to the Coast Guard's Blackjack unit, and that is one of the H-65 Dolphin helicopters that they use to patrol the skies, especially if they see that an unidentified aircraft has pierced Washington's restricted airspace. That siren is the U.S. Coast Guard's call to action. These helicopter crews have a matter of minutes to get into the air and intercept a plane that has breached restricted airspace over Washington, D.C. It could be anything. We want to get in the air as quickly as we can to determine if it is a threat. Now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. Welcome back to Security Matters. I'm Paul Violas. And as I mentioned before we took our break, being joined by a, a dear friend to the, to the United States. We're talking about someone that has joined us in the past right here at CBS News Radio. Um, none other than the retired Lieutenant Colonel James Reese from the, from the United States Army. Uh, Colonel Reese retired from, from the Army in 2007 after 25 years uh, as both a non-commissioned and commissioned officer. He spent 20 of those 25 years in special operations with his last 10 years with the famed Delta Force, uh, by far a tactical operations unit that there are just no words for. We just recently saw one of their many operations, but something that Colonel Reese can share with us now. He's the co-founder and chairman, or the founder and chairman of Tiger Swan, which is an international crisis management and stability support corporation that thrives in non uh, and semi-permissive, culturally diverse operating environments and protects people, critical infrastructure, brands, and reputations with its guardian angel virtual bodyguard technology and service. Colonel Reese, thanks for joining us today. Paul, good afternoon. How are you? Great, great to have you on again, today. sir. Great to have you on again, and I appreciate the time. You know, we're, we're celebrating Veterans Day today, and, and before you joined, I was, was sharing with everybody, you know, just how important it is for us as Americans to understand that, you know, we walk around, Colonel, from, from, from point A to point B, 
And so many times we take for granted for the fact that we can do that, you know, that we can go to a movie or go to a restaurant or, you know, that we don't have to see military parading our streets because of what our veterans have done and what they continue to do to clothe us with the very fabric of freedom we are blessed with on a daily basis. So as, as we kind of share that on Veterans Day and we reflect on that, my first question to you is, from your eyes, can you tell us about the United States Army? Well, you know, Paul, for me, the United States Army was, uh, it really was an anomaly for me. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a great organization. It's big. It's a big, it's monstrous. Um, it's the first service in the Army. That's why you know, the Army was the first service in the United States. So, you know, when all the services march, the Army is always the one that leads because it was the first service that uh, the United States of America put in the service. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a little different, I think. You know, you, you get a lot, of, a lot of kids today and, you know, 9-11 happened or they knew from a small age from their dad went to West Point or the Naval Academy and they've had this thing. Me? I mean, my dad was in the Army, was an officer, uh, infantry guy. It was cool, you know, not a big thing. Um, now, I had a little brother who wanted to be an airborne ranger from, as, as I think, from seven years old. Uh-huh. It's always what he knew. What he, and even when he went in, he went in before me. He was my little brother. He enlisted in the Army to be an airborne ranger. The guy was airborne ranger, green through, blue through. Um, I was like, whatever, man, have a good one. Um, <laughs> So you didn't you know, see it coming. I, I was no, I didn't see it coming. I was, I was just a I was your regular old American guy playing sports, you know, chasing girls, those types of things. And uh, you know, I went to college and I joined ROTC for my beloved father, really, because he asked me, he goes, "Why don't you just do this? Join join ROTC, mm-hmm. take a look at it." And I said, "Okay, Dad, no problem." So I did that. Um, and funny was, is at the end of my freshman year, I was home, played football my freshman year, getting ready for, for camp. And the, um, the colonel who ran the ROTC at the university called me and said, Hey, do you want to go to jump school, airborne school? And I'm like, well, I thought that's for juniors. And we already had, yeah, but that person fell out. You're the only one I know in shape who could do it. Do you want to go? I was like, okay. You know, so literally the next morning, my mom and dad are put me on a bus to Fort Benning, Georgia, you know, 22 hour bus ride. And, uh, you know, I was I literally had no idea. Couldn't tell you what the rank system was. But all of a sudden now I'm a cadet at the United States Army, you know, airborne school, jumping out of airplanes, just like all those great Americans did during World War Two on D-Day. Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead. But then you move through special operations. And I think this is really important. Um, and this is probably for an entire show, which we, we should definitely do, but uh, you, you move in, you spent 20 years in special ops. Now, no disrespect 23, to, to... 23, actually. I'm 23. sorry? Tw- 23. 23, actually. I stand corrected. Yeah. 23 years you, you spent in special ops. Um, and no disrespect to the to TV and movie, because I know everybody wants to make a living, but you know, I don't really think that the average American citizen truly understands the depth of physical commitment, personal sacrifice, um, intellect, the, the depth of intellect, all of these things that are required to even be considered for special ops and then, and then to make it to Delta. It, it, can you just take 
a, a, a couple of minutes, Colonel, and give us a, your your words of wisdom and your description of what being part of the special operations community really means. Yeah, Paul, I mean, the way you describe it, it's, it's great. You know, I, so very quickly, I came in my first, I enlisted, I, I dropped out of school and enlisted in the Army as an Airborne Ranger. Kind of funny. Followed my bro- little brother's footsteps. The Rangers, um, you know, they are known for the physical aspect, the shock troops. Um, don't get me wrong, smart, smart young men, high, very high, um, what they call GT scores to get right. into the military. Um, kind of like your SAT score for the military. But I'll tell you what, when I, so I spent years in the Rangers, both as an enlisted NCO and an officer. But then when I got recruited for Delta, um, and, and I always prided myself on being a you know, physical animal and, and really working through things physically. When I got to Delta, though, those physical attributes were nothing compared to the mental attributes that I saw of the men and women that I had to deal with. And when I went through OTC, I mean, I've seen guys that are literally Adonis's physical that couldn't make it because their minds weren't there. Mm-hmm. And the psycho, the psychological profiles that, you know, that Delta is, is driven off of and the intellect. I mean, these men are, you know, they are, God, man, it's, it's, I, I, I kind of catch my breath when I talk about these, these folks, because I considered myself on the lower end. Um, they're Renaissance men. And what's really cool about them, they're artists, they're musicians, they're, um, they, they, they're incredible writers. Linguistics, um, right? How, how many, linguistics. how many, how oh. many members of Delta, any of the members of Special Forces speak more than one language? Well, remember, the Green Berets, that's one of their big things, the Green Berets. I mean, they all train in a, in a cultural area, in, a, in you know, whether it's South America, Asia, the Middle East. So they learn that, that language for that, but they stay right there. In Delta, we have a worldwide, and, and we have a worldwide mission. I mean, on my first real-world operational that I was going into, into the Balkans, which was the former Yugoslavia, right. To go, you know, to go after and capture indicted war criminals. I was with one of our operators who already spoke six, six languages. Amazing. And on the 17 hour flight in near into near Sarajevo, he taught himself Serbo-Croat. Well, I mean, who does that? Who, I mean, who, who does, does that? Exactly. Who has the intellect to do that? I couldn't learn. I couldn't learn that in three years. Uh, dude, I couldn't, I couldn't, Paul, I couldn't probably learn it in my lifetime. That's just, but he sat there, this is the late 90s with a little Walkman, they little Walkman, right. young folks that I don't even know what that is, Walkman, with his earphones on his little book, and, you know, he didn't want to be disturbed, he gave you bad looks, but by the time we landed, that guy could speak Serbo-Croat. That's I mean, just, this guy was, come I mean, on, he's Einstein, Einstein, it's crazy. But you know crazy. what, though, you know what, though, Jim, that really does speak to the intellect that's required from our special operators. And I think, again, I think that, you know, we, we watch television and we watch movies and we see our operators portrayed in a certain, in a certain way. I think that's overly myopic thinking, you know, I mean, yes, they are in ridiculous physical condition. No question. You and everyone else that that's part of our special operation, just ridiculous physical condition. 
But we can't, as Americans, limit ourselves to that is the quality of our special operators because I have to say, having having worked intimately with our with, with operators overseas, their intellect is the thing that just blows me the hell away. Just how smart all of you guys are and the diversity of knowledge. So um, with that, uh, Colonel, do me a favor as we close out this interview. Uh, what is your message to all of our listeners, to the American public about Veterans Day? So one, you know, I want to tell the American public, thank you for thanking all the veterans out there. Um, I get embarrassed from it. Uh, but I will. I do appreciate when people notice and they ask me, and I appreciate you telling, you know, the older generations. And now I consider myself the older generation. But here's another key piece: is since you know, our our, our folks before World War II, Vietnam, 9/11 is really the folks that we fought with, those allies on the ground, like in Syria right now, in in Kurdistan. They are our allies. They are veterans in this war that we are fighting for our, um, for our, for our next generation. So if you meet someone like that, thank them for their service also, because they that's are a big point. part of keeping America safe. That's, that's, a great, that's, that's, that's a great close on that, Jim. And for everyone to know um, uh, something about Colonel Reese before we take a break. The commander of coalition forces of Iraq and Afghanistan, General David McKiernan, you probably remember him, called Jim one of the finest special operators in modern history. So with everything that we just said, that's the individual that just shared time with us. Lieutenant Colonel retired James Reese, U.S. Army. Thank you, sir. Uh, it is a privilege to know you, consider you a friend, and feel internally blessed that, that you decided to join us today. So thank you for that. Thanks, Paul, and happy Veterans Day, and thanks for everything you do. Thank you. Stay with us. We're going to take a quick break, and we come back and introduce you to a retired colonel from the Marines, and he's going to give you a real good picture of on-the-ground warfare. Stay with us. From CBS News headquarters in New York, here is Dan Rather. It was just over 90 minutes beyond President Bush's deadline for Saddam Hussein to leave Iraq that U.S. warships and planes, there were F-117 stealth bombers involved, launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. The attack came in waves, cruise missiles, followed by the F-117 stealth bombers with so-called bunker-busting bombs. Their target, a bunker believed to be sheltering, what are called top leaders of the Iraqi regime. Now, this is what it looked and sounded like in Baghdad. It was this short, and this is what happened. Now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. Welcome back to Security Matters. And as I mentioned before we took our break, we have a retired colonel from the United States Marine Corps that's going to be joining us right now. I'm going to give you a little bit about uh, Colonel Stanley's background in a second. Um, as, as we're rounding out today's show, celebrating our veterans and making sure that we never, ever forget the fact that we are walking from point A to point B every day because of our veterans, those that served, those that serve now. And, and I, we cannot, in any way, shape, or form, we cannot ever let that message diminish. So today on Veterans Day, let's make sure that we, we put our arms around that. 
Colonel Chris Starling is retired after 26 years as a Marine Infantry Officer. In that time, he made 10 different overseas deployments, which included three combat tours. He commanded the 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines out of Camp Lejeune and the 23rd Marine Regiment out of San Bruno, California. His duties are widespread, as you can imagine, from, ranging from uh, an instructor at the U.S. Military Academy to a U.S. military advisor to the Emirati Presidential Guard in Abu Dhabi. Uh, he's, his post-retirement work has been focused on the veteran community, as you can imagine, someone that's dedicated his entire life and continues to dedicate his entire life to our veterans. So with that, Colonel Starling, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Colonel, take us through from, uh, from your perspective, 26 years as a Marine, a lifetime Marine. We all know that there are no ex-Marines. There are former Marines. You were always a Marine. Um, from your eyes, tell us about the United States Marine Corps. Well, I, you know, I came into uh, the Marine Corps. I grew up in the Marine Corps uh, environment. My dad was a Navy chaplain, and he served most of his tours with Marines, including in Vietnam. Uh, he was with the 1st Marine Division there. And so uh, growing up, uh, we moved from Navy base to Navy base, and there were always Marines. And I had always uh, admired uh, what Marines stood for and uh, how they conducted themselves, how they did business. It was always, you know, from being a, a kid, something I aspired to. Uh, I went to Virginia Military Institute. I graduated in 1988. Uh, we all remember it was the Cold War time then. Right. It was uh, Soviet Union. You had two uh, powers, and um, we were preparing to fight a major war with a peer competitor. That changed very quickly when the Berlin Wall came down, and uh, the next thing we knew, we were in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So uh, I participated in that. And then war changed again after 9-11. Uh, we have a different type of stateless actor enemy. And at the same time, our military shifted to do a lot more humanitarian assistance and disaster response in addition to the combat missions. So that's how uh, the Marine Corps uh, attracted me. Uh, I love being around Marines. Uh, I really believe in the core values. And But I watched uh, the Marine Corps change and our nation's overseas presence and mission change through the Cold War Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and then the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, Colonel, every branch of service critical importance is of critical importance, no question. The Marines have such a, an incredible, incredibly powerful and rich um, history of having served our country and continue to serve our country in, on a variety of different fronts. Um, but I, you know, and and in each branch has their own motto. But Semper Fidelis, why Semper Fidelis? Why is that the Marine Corps motto? Well, you know, that goes back a long way. Semper Fidelis means always faithful. That's the Latin. And Marines are faithful to their nation. Uh, they are faithful to each other. And, you know, they are faithful in their personal and professional lives wherever they go beyond the Marine Corps. Uh, it is a motto. And always faithful also goes back to our core values honor, courage, and commitment. Uh, and so there's always a linkage. Uh, and, you know, Semper Fidelis, we've carried that with us for, uh, for many, many years. And, uh, you know, most of all, I find that between my fellow Marines uh, when I was on active duty and, and now. 
we say it to each other all the time, Semper Fi. It, it's, it's, it's a greeting and it's a reminder uh, of who we are. So, Colonel, tell me a little bit about uh, what you're doing to serve the veteran community now. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm the executive director of NPower California. Uh, NPower is a nonprofit uh, that trains veterans and veteran spouses for free in uh, a range of uh, technical fields, um, IT fundamentals, Cisco network technicians, cybersecurity, AWS cloud networking, and uh, we train veterans in a, in a uh, 16-week program, and then we put them into jobs. That's fantastic. And uh, th- th- this is really important uh, because as people come back from overseas serving their country, a lot of times they don't know what to do next. Our military is very technical now, and so a lot of them have technical skills they don't even know they have. So I bring them into the classroom, and after 16 weeks, I get them industry certified, and then I have a placement team that goes out, negotiates with companies, and puts them into internships and into jobs. And we're a, partner of, we're a partner of the Department of Labor. After 2,000 hours on the job, they get an IT generalist certification uh, certificate from the Department of Labor. So uh, the mission continues here, and we are uh, really happy uh, to see the success of our veterans and our veteran spouses in the NPower program. Well, congratulations on that, Colonel. As a, a 26-year Marine infantry officer, someone who has served our country both here and abroad, um, 10 overseas deployments, three combat tours, as a proven leader in the United States Marine Corps and the United States military, um, Share with our, our audience, if you wouldn't mind, Colonel, uh, what Veterans Day is all about and what's your message to the American people and to all of our listeners? What do you want them to take away on this most sacred day in our, in, that, that we celebrate in our history? Well, you know, I, I would just say it's, it's a real privilege to wear the cloth of your nation and to go overseas and represent uh, American society. Um, we put on the uniform and go overseas as a warfighter, uh, as a, as a diplomat, as a representative of what our nation represents. We are a great democracy. Uh, our founding fathers, uh, came up with this incredible document, the constitution. And while it is, uh, our government is in some ways not perfect, it is the best thing going. And we are recognized like that, uh, around the world. A lot of places we go. The people that we meet uh, in in Kenya, in Jordan, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, in China, many of them have never met an American before. The first American they might meet is a uh, is a, a U.S. Marine, an expeditionary uh, service member uh, overseas, and it's important for us to uh, convey the goodness that is America. At the same time, uh, if there are enemies of the United States. Our job is to strike fear into those enemies and realize that uh, they cannot win a fight uh, with the United States. Uh, so it goes back to the old, you know, no better friend, no worse enemy piece. But I think uh, for Americans, it's a privilege for us to serve. And we appreciate uh, the fact that, you know, we know that less than 1% of our nation uh, wear the uniform and are out on the pointy end of democracy. And 
we are grateful for your appreciation. Uh, veterans are treated very well now. Uh, I look at when my dad came back from Vietnam, it was not the same. I think our country has learned a lot in that time, and um, it, it makes me happy to see people being educated, seeking opportunities, and taking advantage of what this wonderful country has to offer. Uh, going out and protecting it uh, in the, on those dusty ramparts of democracy, that was part of my job. I did it proudly, and I did it with, with a happy heart. Uh, what brings me joy now is watching my kids grow up in this country and uh, what I do now, training uh, veterans in technology and helping them get jobs and really realize the American dream. We are very fortunate to live in this country. Well, Colonel, I couldn't have said that any better. There's no question about that. And on behalf of everybody here at CBS News Radio and certainly our entire team at Security Matters, we want, to know, we want you to know how deeply grateful we are for you taking time out to share this invaluable message. And on behalf of all of our listeners, too, uh, a huge thank you to you personally, sir. So, uh, again, I, I hope you enjoy your Veterans Day. I hope you have a great time enjoying today with your family and, uh, and know that it's, you have a, a, a proud and a grateful nation that, uh, that, that, that awaits everything that you have yet to do in this long career you had ahead of you. So thank you very much, sir. Hey, thank you. It was a pleasure and an honor, and I look forward to reflecting on those great men and women who went before me on Veterans Day. Thanks. Absolutely. Stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. We come back. A message from CBS News Radio to all our veterans. Stay with me. Anthony Mason is at the American Cemetery and Memorial in Normandy, where this morning's event took place. Anthony, a picture certainly worth a thousand words throughout the morning there. Yeah, quite a ceremony, Dana. And uh, the flyover, as you can see, is still going on, so it might get loud momentarily. But it is a bright and beautiful day in Normandy, nothing like 75 years ago, when bad weather threatened to scuttle the invasion. A large crowd came here this morning to commemorate this turning point in World War II. There's the flyover. The first Allied troops who landed on June 6, 1944, were followed by hundreds of thousands who drove German occupiers out of France and forced the surrender of Nazi Germany in May of 1945. But the success of D-Day came at the cost of thousands of lives. More than 9,300 U.S. service members are buried here at the American Cemetery in Normandy. About 100 survivors from the U.S. and other countries are here to honor them and remember the events of D-Day. Now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. Welcome back to Security Matters as we close for today. Again, very happy uh, Veterans Day to everybody, to all our veterans. Thank you. On behalf of CBS News Radio and everybody here, a big thank you to, to our veterans, to our veterans' families for the sacrifice, uh, for the service, for the time, for the dedication that all of you have, have invested in making sure the rest of us can, as I said several times already, be clothed with that fabric of freedom that we should always be grateful for. So on behalf of everybody here at Security Matters, be safe, be well. God bless. Get him back here. Get him back here if you can. Can you move him? Can, can you move him? Okay, bring, try and bring him back here. Remember to stop the bleeding. And Devoye, the medic, having survived another rescue mission, brings back the wounded man. Who is it? Who is it? Question spreads down the line. Oh, Christ, it's Hero, the sergeant who likes to walk point.
How bad is it? A couple of leg wounds. We were walking down the trail. We're perimeter out here. I was walking point, and uh, we noticed a side trail. It was one of the side trails we came down. It had more use on it than when we first came down it. So uh, I looked up and spotted uh, just a, it was an NVA. It had a green uniform and an AK. And uh, I was like a you know, quick draw old thing. I opened up in him. He opened up in me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid it works that way. But... Uh, He's, he's lying up there on the trail. We have take fire. I got hit in both legs. Pop, pop uh, smoke, 4-3. Pop a smoke over right. here. That's about it. Ed? <laughs> well, we've got seven months in country now. Three Purple Hearts. I don't need a fourth. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas. The podcast is produced by Seth Nyman and CBS News Radio. For more podcasts from CBS News, visit cbsaudio.com slash podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.